0: So let's get through the market,
1: shall we, and cross straight over to Carl Weinberg, high-frequency economics founder, as we break through that breaking news here at Bloomberg following what could be a significant shift in China's purchases of treasuries. Carl, you've heard the news. Walk me through what you think is the significance, the message that comes from these Chinese officials.
2: Well, good morning. I I think that we need to know a lot more about what's actually going on. The the notion that the Chinese would actually sell treasuries seems to me to be extremely implausible. uh, You know, to sell treasuries, they'd have to buy something else, and that would involve a currency transaction, and I don't think they're prepared to be seen as intervening in the currency markets. If they're just going to be buying less of them, well, they have been buying less of them, uh, although there has been a bit of renaissance recently. But that would mean that they're not taking in more dollars on their foreign trade surplus is that they're taking in more euros, perhaps, and they're they're buying more uh, an exchange counterpart to, to cash yeah. inflows. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean a catastrophic sale of treasuries at all. I think that we just have to get some more information, but probably they're just going to buy a little bit less moving forward rather than uh, liquidate their holdings.
1: Well, it's not clear whether this recommendation is actually materialized into action either, Carl, so we should probably think about that as well. But if you take a step back, last year they took the opportunity, as their currency strengthened, to build up their F- Reserves. Is there a message that we can take away from this about how comfortable they might be with the current level of the Chinese yuan?
2: Well, I I think that there's been an overt change since President Xi's speech in Davos last year, in which he pitched China as the new champion of uh, globalization to keep the uh, the yuan strong and to make it even stronger so that people would have confidence in holding it. There's very clearly a competition developing between China and the United States to be the leader of globalization, the leader of free trade. And uh, I think that a strong currency is part of China's strategy. They're managing
0: it they can do it. Carl Weinberg with us out of our studios in London, which is a good and beautiful uh, thing. Uh, Bloomberg Surveillance this morning brought to you by USCF. Invest in what's real. Visit uscfinvestments.com. That's uscfinvestments.com. We thank them uh, for their uh, support. Uh, Carl, there has been a grand shift. It occurred yesterday with a shock shock of a president to Davos. My phrase for the year is make Davos Davos again. Is a president gonna succeed at that? If he's gonna go there with what Mike Allen over at Axios calls a carrot and stick approach from one of his sources, is the carrot and the stick gonna be felt up Happy Valley?
2: Well, you know, Tom, I'd like to think that the president's handlers are sending him over there to try to repair U.S. relations and to try to reverse uh, some of the damage that has been done in those relations over the last year. Uh, For me, the highlight of last year's Davos was President Xi's speech, the one I just referred to, in which he proposed that China would promote globalization if the U.S. wouldn't. I think this is a chance for the president to explain to everybody what U.S. policy is, and I'm hoping that his his statement will be that the U.S. believes in trade, it just wants to level the trading field, and that's a much yeah. more digestible uh, proposition. But,
0: but th- that is not a multilateral tone, is it? I mean, if he, tr- if he waltzes over there with Peter Navarro and Wilbur Ross, it's not a Davos-friendly tone, is it?
2: Well, it's not a Davos-friendly crowd, but remember, the president uh, will be scripted and that uh, Navarro will only be one of the voices that uh, will, uh, will draft that script. Sure, sure. Uh, there are other voices out there, uh, particularly over at the state side, that is concerned about uh, Europe, for example, pivoting its primary relations away from the Atlantic Alliance toward yeah. a stronger tie with China. And uh, I think that there are concerns in other parts of his uh, advice pool about uh, the damage that could be done long term to the U.S. by being more isolated.
1: Tom Keane, this is not the morning to talk about the World Economic Forum. Not with the moves we've had in the bond market of the last 24 hours. Uh, You think think Trump going to Davos is the news of the morning?
0: I think it's a huge, huge deal for Washington. I
1: think the fragility of the bond market is absolutely front and center. And that's the significant story this morning, Carl. Walk me up about, walk me through about how fragile you think the situation in Treasuries might be.
2: Well, I mean there there are very explosive headlines and doom and gloom for by various people about the bond market but you know the bottom line is that most of the time when the Fed hikes rates and it's hiking rates because it fears inflation bond yields go up because the the, the base the primary base for for bond yields the fed rates are going yeah. up and because inflation expectations are going up. So this is not really news, this is maybe a startling movement on a single day, but you really have to expect that if history's not going to reverse itself 5 out of 6 times uh, we've seen the bond market rise with the Fed tightening. And this is, I think, shaping up to be one of those times. Yeah. Just another I mean, day in paradise.
0: John, I just took a quick look at one of my technical studies, and I don't even get sweaty until 265. We had a guest on this morning, uh, Jonathan Krinsky, at MKM looking for 263, 264 is key technical resistance on higher yield.
1: As you look at the bond market, Carl, the situation for many people has been, term premium has been incredibly low, in fact it's been negative. What's going to be the catalyst to get term premium up, which would mean a sustained move higher in Treasury yields going forward?
2: Yeah, so I think that you know uh, risk and supply are one element in there. You know, we just had a tax bill passed with a a trillion and a half dollars of new borrowing for the next decade, possibly more, possibly less, but something on that order of magnitude. We have infrastructure spending coming, so we have I think some uncertainty about uh, you know, some nervousness, perhaps, about having to deal with that. We do have expectations for higher inflation coming out there, and while it's a slow burn, the inflation indicators, wages in particular, are starting to accelerate a little bit visibly. So the elements are in place. Place for that term premium to normalize and, and maybe even overshoot to the uh, higher side. You can't be sure of that. But certainly, this is not a time to be looking for lower term premium for lower bond yields. I certainly agree with that yeah. statement. It's just the question of whether it's going to be a panic or not, and I have no reason to think it will well, be.
1: Well, Carl, at this stage, when you put all the moving parts together, the prospect of a bigger deficit in the United States of America, the prospect of China stepping back, the reality of an unwind of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet and rates going higher as well, that's fertile grind for a, a, a repricing of treasuries it's Isn't it? Well, yes,
2: but you know almost all of those things you mentioned, except for the China announcement, have been in the market for a while. Yeah. So you think about what's new and what's going to change expectations. And I don't believe the China statement is uh, enough to, uh, to to really create a, a panicky market situation in and of itself. We've known about the Fed for a while. We've known about the Fed unwinding its balance sheet. We've known about inflation. We've known about growth and wages and the unemployment rate and all that. So I think that in terms of news this morning, China at the margin uh, could make a difference. But again, we don't even have enough details to fully assess what that means at this
1: moment. We don't, Carl, but what is clear is that we're seeing a repricing. And over the last couple of weeks, you're seeing a lot more people reach to hedge their exposure, potentially to a higher inflation rate through this year. Does that make sense to you?
2: Well, yes. and uh, my, you know, my due diligence in saying, you know, uh, in saying everything is that, yes, we should expect higher bond yields. No, I have no basis to expect a panic in, bond, in bonds uh, to occur in the short term. Technicians yeah. may have a, a reason for the market to sell off, and that's independent of uh, what the economics says. When the technicals and the economics call for the same thing, you do tend to get more powerful moves. But the economics of the matter are actually pretty tranquil.
1: Carl Weinberg, high-frequency economics founder, the reality check on, on some fragile, some fragility, just some fragility coming through in the bond market.
0: It is a joy to speak with Jeffrey Curry of Goldman Sachs, head of their commodities research. He writes acutely detailed notes on the dynamics of supply and demand jeff curry you are trumpeting the return of backward backwardation that is a mouthful what is backwardation and why should we care
3: it's a condition in a commodity market where the spot price sits above the forward price and it's a condition that's usually representative a market that is very short i like to think of an example let's take oxygen You have to have it today because if you don't have it today, you're dead. You don't care about tomorrow. So, oxygen would be a perfectly backwardated market. And so, when we think about a contango markets where spot prices sit below forward prices, that's what these markets look like throughout most of the period over the last 10 years since the the crisis. So the fact that we have oil now shifting into a solid backwardation, zinc into backwardation, is an indication that supply chains around the world for both metals and oil are starting to get very, very tight. So backwardation is an indication, a premium for prompt delivery, spot prices above forward prices.
1: How much is it, Jeff? about shale coming online as this crude price goes up?
3: That's a very important component of this, is that when we think about the forward outlook for energy, I don't think anybody out there is going to argue we're running out of oil on a longer-term basis because there's so much supply. And what we saw with the rally this week in prices is that producers came in and sold the back end of that forward curve, which then reinforces this whole concept of backwardation. And the thing about it is with the backwardation is that Particularly, even if OPEC tries to ramp up production or you have the shale, it's just going to put more selling pressure on the back end while the strong global economic backdrop that we have right now is going to put upward pressure on the front end of the curve, reinforcing the the backwardation. I'm going to go back to Tom's question of why is this important. Yeah, It's because an investor can buy oil at a discount on the forward curve and then hold it up and it rolls up to expiration and sell it at a premium. So the oil price does not need to move. All you do is you roll the front end of the curve. And I want to emphasize, commodities are yielding assets. And it's that shape of the forward curve that gives the yield. And for the first time in quite some time, we're now in a positive yield, which allows the investor to hold oil without having to pay the cost of carry. So this is a very important development for investors.
1: Jeff, this is the market dynamic. Let's talk about the economic backdrop fundamentally and the commodity complex in its entirety, China. A lot of news coming through from China today, a conversation this morning here on Bloomberg about Chinese officials wary of purchasing more treasuries from here. As you look at the FX dynamics in China, what does it mean ultimately for how you view the commodity trade?
3: Well I think the biggest and most important component of what's going on in China really is the supply side policy that they've implemented more recently in the sense that they're trying to deal with two problems in China. One is the pollution problem, so the anti-pollution, but the other is that they have, you know, a debt problem in some of the key industries. And those key industries in which they have the debt problem happen to be in your core commodity sectors like steel, iron ore, aluminum and as a result by cutting back capacity not only they take pollution out of the system but they also increase the prices of these commodities which reduces the number of non-performing loans on the bank's balance sheet. So that's a really important component. And if you go back to the currency question, because these are the commodities that they export, not import. When we think about, you know, a weakening um, currency in terms of um, any type of, you know, retaliation type of dynamic here that you end up with a more competitive environment to push these commodities out. So there you know there's a lot of connections here between these but I think the primary one really is a supply side policy.
1: Jeff at the moment over the last few years for that matter you've always drawn a distinction between what you see in China as capex commodities and opex commodities. How has that story developed over the last few quarters for you?
3: When when we look at the the broader demand for commodities right now is that there's something I've never seen before. We use the term global synchronous growth from a geographic perspective, and we're seeing that right now. But what makes this even more different than 2004, was last time we saw real strong global synchronous growth, yeah. well, is that it's synchronous across the commodity complex, across metals, across yeah. the barrel of oil. I've never seen this. It's The, the comprehensive nature of this demand growth is unprecedented. Okay.
0: Well, I'm looking at the copper chart. I'll get it out on uh, Twitter for Bloomberg Radio. You'll get a first look at it. But, I mean, is copper something that where, where Jeff Curry can call bottom to the commodity bear market? I mean, copper's had a great move, but by no means is it broken out through, you know, 2005, 2006 highs.
3: Well, I think, when you think about, you know, the old saying, you know, copper has a PhD in economics, I, I'm i a firm believer. The only difference is instead of being Harvard now, it's some Shanghai university. Um, and in terms of looking at the health of the global economy, you know, the one thing is, you know, Shorting base metals in the midst of an economic expansion yeah. is a very dangerous proposition. And so I think, you know, even though our target is 77,050 right now and the market's yeah. trading around 71,50, I think all the yeah. risks are to the upside right now. And I could easily see um, copper pushing up and testing new highs. Maybe 10,000, what we saw in 2011 mm. may be difficult, but the highs of 0, 06 and 08, I think, are very, very much a risk to the upside.
0: Quickly, or Jeff Curry, do I get Brent crude to $70 a barrel?
3: Um, I'm not. I haven't looked at my screen in the last five minutes. It may already be there. Well, we're about, um, we're about um, seventy yeah, I, cents away, me,
0: That's how fast it's <laughs> yes. moving. Seventy-five dollars. It shows you where my head is.
3: Yeah, you know, I, I I would argue that oil is going to have a much more difficult time um getting upside pressure, unlike okay. copper. And the reason for this is the long-term oil supply story is oversupplied. So you have producers who are going to go sell that back in every right. time you go to the upside. Okay. Metals has a long-term supply story that's bullish, means both the up back end and the front end of metals can go up, which is why we prefer, from Great. a price perspective, buy the metals.
0: Great briefing. Jeffrey Curry, Goldman Sachs, thank you so much. Real effort there from Frankfurt is off. You may know nationwide that there is the worship of a football player in the New England region, one T. Brady, or maybe it's Lawrence Bird of basketball fame of a time ago, or Bobby Orr leaping across to St. Louis Blues goal. The same can be said of academics out of Fall River, Massachusetts in Boston College. He has held court in science at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where it's been known that he fly fishes on the Charles River. He's a former Secretary of Energy, Ernest Moniz. Uh, Professor money's wonderful to have you back um, with us. Um, I, I would suggest we have wandered into an anti science, anti math moment in Washington. Do we need to reverse it or do we need to get used to it and live with it?
4: Well, I think the issue of addressing a whole range of policy issues uh, based on facts. Uh, I mean there's science but there's also facts and analysis uh, scientifically based uh, is absolutely critical uh, uh, otherwise we're just be, we'll just be lurching uh, from one side uh, of the room to the other side of the room if you like uh, in terms of in terms of how we, we put our policies together and frankly I think that this uh, uh, is creating tremendous problems uh, in terms of uh, the underpinnings of our global strength, which is the set of alliances and institutions that this country spent 70 years uh, building. Uh, if we are viewed as unreliable, as, as not, uh, not uh, moving forward on the basis of facts and analysis and science, uh, that's going to shake confidence uh, in those institutions and and undercut, again, our, uh, our international uh, strength and, the, and our, our, our ability to lead.
0: The kids that come into the Massachusetts Institute of Technology are all top shelf they wander with great arrogance through Physics 1, Physics 2, Physics 3. And then there's a the great divider, course number 8.04, Quantum Physics 1. <laughs> What's it like making the leap to pretend to be like Professor Moniz?
4: <laughs> well, uh, first of all, uh, I should say that the, the students, uh, no matter what their majors are, uh, are required to take uh to take physics here, here. uh and uh, uh they they are not required to take quantum physics uh unless they are in physics or one of the engineering disciplines that sure. uh, that calls for it uh but uh, it certainly is uh it's a uh, it's a mind stretching experience to to uh to yeah. uh, at at the end of the second year to uh, to start looking at at quantum physics uh but um uh, i i think the arrogance you referred to uh is uh is gone by that time frankly <laughs> you- beat it out of them.
0: Yeah, I bring this up, folks, because I just spoke to a wonderful student out of a major state university who got through college with no science and only one marginal math course. And I just think the death of this is... Is hugely important. Let's move on to important. If I could just add on please, that, I, please. I,
4: I think it's, it's, that's a disservice, I believe, to those students. It's she not knew preparing that. Them. She knew that. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Good. She was more than aware yeah. that she had been uh, cheated. We are not cheated by your expertise when we see North and South Korea uh, get together. And this does come down to the physics of uh, uh, nuclear uh, science. Do you have a legitimate belief that North Korea? Has the Moniz physics to attack someone and do harm?
4: Well, first of all, we have to say that it's a fact that they have had a uh, remarkable trajectory in developing their nuclear weapons and developing their, their missile capabilities. Uh, now... Uh, it it may be and um, I believe actually it is likely that they did have uh, some assistance uh, in in both arenas but one cannot take it away from them that uh, they have uh, they've trained their their scientists to a large extent uh, uh, internally uh, and uh, and they've had They've moved uh, rather rather quickly. Uh, in fact, I think that we have underestimated that uh, consistently uh, uh, in the sense that uh, we prefer to call a nuclear test uh, in North Korea a provocation as opposed to what I believe it really is a, a systematic step. Along a um, along a trajectory uh, uh, to to make nuclear weapons uh, uh, and and with a strong commitment to it, so uh, so I think we we make a mistake if we if we underestimate their their capabilities. Uh, I know my my colleague uh, 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 Sig Hecker, who used to be the director of the Los Alamos National Laboratory, uh, an expert uh, in in the weapons arena, uh, he visited uh, North Korea many times and and already. Uh, seven years ago, he told me. Just in fact, recently again, how uh, stunned he was to see a enrichment plant uh, that uh, was yeah. extraordinarily modern, all the modern technologies. And so, you know, we have to right. take we have to take this threat uh, for for what it is.
0: We all have our benchmarks along the way, and for those of us more fossil nature, there's Ted Taylor's the curve of binding energy, the John McPhee book, or there's something as myth making as Doctor Strangelove uh, from 1964. Do they have the rocketry? Do they have the telemetry? Do they have the ignition systems within their physics to make the toy work if they launch it at us?
4: So they clearly have the rockets. They have demonstrated that. But when you start getting into telemetry, et cetera, et cetera, I think you put your finger on... Uh, What we have, uh, as far as I can see at least, and of course I no longer have access to all the information, uh, but from what we can see, uh, they certainly uh, have a long way to go in terms of getting the entire system uh, together to deliver a nuclear weapon uh, over uh, intercontinental distances uh, because they're – uh, telemetry and including meaning uh, making all of the physical measurements uh, uh, to understand how the how the system uh, works and survives right uh, I've seen no no evidence of that but when I say a, when I say a long time I actually uh, it depends what what the time scale is here uh, i I think we have to assume uh, that we're only talking about uh, a couple of years of dedicated effort uh, for the entire system to be, to be brought together. Uh, whether that happens, I don't know. But mm-hmm. I think it's the planning basis that we need to use uh, as we think about how to address uh, the North Korean situation.
0: Each administration is different. You were uh, Secretary of Energy for President Obama. But if, if each administration is different, do you have confidence that the generals, General McMaster, General Mattis, General Kelly, and others are, are, are moving forward? our defense against this physics?
4: Well, first of all, Secretary Secretary Mattis, uh, formerly General Mattis, yes. uh, uh, and McMaster, and 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 also the Secretary of State Tillerson, uh, I think they have all stated explicitly that they understand uh, the very very bad options that a military uh, intervention would represent, uh, uh, mainly because it's hard to see how a major uh, altercation. Uh, Uh, would not lead to tremendous destruction, not only of North Korea, but of our allies, uh, our own military personnel, their families uh, in South Korea and Japan. So uh, number one is we really need to have a discussion. I believe that discussion uh, needs to be broadened uh, from what it has been uh, because – Frankly, this may sound uh, strange, but uh, I think the discussion has been too much focused on nuclear weapons uh, in North yeah. Korea as opposed to the yeah. broader security context uh, in that region. And that includes, of course, South Korea, Japan, and China. Uh, and I think we need to – end, and it, inc- it includes – frankly, the future military profile of the United States in that region. And until we bring all those issues together, uh, informed by the ground truth in terms of uh, what North Korean capabilities are and what the capabilities of our allies are, uh, we're not going to get there. Look, I think the denuclearization of the peninsula uh, remains uh, the right goal, but we have to understand that that's going to yeah. be a long-term goal. It's not going to happen uh, uh, quickly. It's a step-by-step process uh, that we need to we need to commit to uh, over probably over over a, a few decades.
0: Secretary Moniz, thank you so much. He's a former Secretary of Energy and, of course, at the Massachusetts uh, Institute of Technology, he's in charge of making freshmen use a slide rule for the first three weeks at MIT. Thank you so much. We welcome Bloomberg Television, Bloomberg Radio Worldwide uh, with William Gross of Janus Henderson. Bill, thank you so much for being with us on short notice today. Let me get right to the granularity of the moment. What have you done in your Janus Unconstrained fund as we've moved rapidly from 240 to 250 and soon a print of 2.60 percent?
5: Well, good morning, Tom. Uh, We've gone short bonds, uh, not just treasuries, but short uh, gilts and short bonds uh, left the JGB market alone. But, you know, it appears that uh, it's a treasury phenomena and treasury directed based upon your Bloomberg report this morning with China uh, being disaffected with uh, U.S. treasuries and your report uh, a day or two ago about JGBs and their change in quantitative easing policies, but nonetheless, uh, you know, it appears a negative type of posture for bonds. I've also uh, gone rather negative on high yield bonds and credit spreads because, you know, as yields rise, uh, you know, zombie-like corporations pay higher yields and their uh, spreads are compressed and their cover is compressed. And so this is not a favorable element for high yield bonds or sovereign bonds, and it's not a favorable element this morning, at least, for the dollar.
0: You worked for years and you built for years a small shop that had enough mass where the Chinese worried about the Pacific Investment Management Company. Give us your experience of what China's doing at the margin with their treasury obligations.
5: Well, they certainly haven't been building treasuries. And, uh, you know, recent evidence over the last few months suggests uh, that they've been liquidating treasuries, um, you know, supposedly an effort to more diversify their portfolio, uh, perhaps. Uh, in, in any case, uh, you know, the liquidation of treasuries as opposed to the accumulation of treasuries by China over the past few years is certainly a negative. And you know, one of the things mentioned several days ago by your uh, reporters uh, has to do with quantitative easing to the extent that the uh, Japanese... Uh, you know, are less easy in terms of their purchases of JGBs to the extent that the ECB at some point later this year pulls back. You know, we've got a worldwide situation in which central banks in total Add in the Fed that's actually reducing their portfolio, in which the world central banks in total are uh, not adding to their portfolio like they have in the past. There's been $14 trillion worth of bonds bought by central banks in the past four to five years. That appears to be um, close to an end.
2: Bill Gross, given your negative view on high yield and sovereign debt and so on, so where should investors go for yield right
4: now?
5: Well that, that that's a good question because um you know a a dramatic rise in yields and I'm not suggesting that you know I've, I've suggested that once we broke the 240-45 barrier on the 10-year under peers that we have uh, which is a long-term trend line over 25 years that you know the increase is likely to be mild I, I, I think 10-year treasuries you know could approach 2.7 2.8 percent by the end of uh, 2018 and what does that mean that means another uh, two or three points loss and it basically wipes out income for the year it's not a bear market per se but it's certainly not a bull market and, you know to be technical uh, bear markets uh, bottomed in 2012 and June of 2016 at 145 and so we're a hundred basis points plus higher um, that could be defined as a bear market but I think more legitimately because bonds you know for those years did still three or four percent based upon you know high yield uh, total returns that um, you know the bear market Uh, that I'm talking about is a mild one, but it it includes, you know, negative prices for high-yield bonds.
2: So where again do you go and get that yield?
5: Well, uh, an investor that has been used to carry, that has been used to risk assets, and I'm talking about stocks too, you know, everything in this barrel is basically the same and connected like the thigh bone and the hip bone. And so where do you go? Well, uh, cash is the first place. You know, I've talked about uh, Janus Unconstrained being negative or negative duration or short bonds. And so that's one area to do. Today should be a fabulous day for Unconstrained. Yesterday was as well. And so there's a way to make money on the... Uh, Other side of the river, so to speak.
0: What is the positioning of the street right now? I mean, we talk about convexity, which is a jargon phrase, folks, where where people cover their trades and go, OMG, Bill Gross is right, and they get out. What is the bet that you see within the institutional market now on bonds? Well,
5: I, I think it's significant, Tom. I think it's significant not just in terms of bonds, but in terms of spreads and uh, what we call and what I've referred to as carry. You know, it's been a wonderful period of time since 1981 as uh, bonds have come down, uh, carry total return, you know, put it all together and the world, uh, the investment world is happy. Um, You know, now at this point, you know, it appears that the market and that institutions are over levered carry. And so anything that's carry dominant and, uh, you know, let's face it, risk assets and uh, bonds and uh, uh, currencies uh, in many cases are carry uh, dominant, then uh, they could be at risk. Now, I'm not, again, this is not Armageddon for me. It's a mild increase, but it basically signifies that, you know, the bull bond market for 25 years is over and that we should look forward to periods of low total returns. I
0: mean, I think this is so important, Bill Gross, the idea here of the leverage involved within the institutional markets and the idea of what those reaction functions will be. And any of us with a collective memory of 1998, remember that. Are we setting ourselves up for that August of 1998 shock that we felt?
5: Well, I I I don't think so, Tom. uh, If for only one reason, Um, you know, Mario Draghi and whatever it takes has not been dismissed. Okay, Uh, he he may be tightening over a period of time, but it's not been dismissed, and so central banks are still in there. Central banks were the you know the primary. THE the PRIMARY GIVER OF uh, CARRY FOR THE PAST FIVE OR SIX YEARS. THEY SAVED THE SYSTEM, THEY PROPPED UP ECONOMIES, AND SO AS LONG AS CENTRAL BANKS ARE IN THERE, uh, NOT TIGHTENING uh, SIGNIFICANTLY, NOT uh, WITHDRAWING QE SIGNIFICANTLY OVER A SHORT PERIOD OF TIME, THEN I THINK CARRY CAN STILL SURVIVE, AND THE LEVERAGE INHERENT IN CARRY, WHILE THREATENED uh, IN TERMS OF uh, MILDLY NEGATIVE RETURNS, PROBABLY uh, DOESN'T PRODUCE A
0: DISASTER. Barclay's total return index can show a more quiescent market. We don't see that in the 10-year yield with a 2.3% price rollover in the last, I'll say, since Thanksgiving or so. Are we at a point where bond market dynamics and price declines changes the dialogue for the central banks and particularly for Chairman Powell?
5: Well, it might. Uh, You know, I I think central banks and certainly the Fed is... uh, is geared towards low volatility, containing market declines, especially in the stock market. And um, to the extent that a 10-year Treasury threatens uh, that, and I don't think it does, let's be clear, or let me be clear, I don't think it does, you know, um, then central banks, uh, as I suggested with Draghi, are are not done with this. And so um, I would expect Tom, uh, volatility as evidenced by the VIX and volatility as evidenced by uh, the move index in bonds to to basically increase. That doesn't mean uh, that we're not going to have higher volatility over short periods of time like you just suggested. But I I don't think we're headed for uh, investment Armageddon. All
2: right. So we're not headed to investment Armageddon, Bill Gross. How many
4: people have asked you about Bitcoin in the last week or so?
5: <laughs> Lots of people and especially my donut girl that I stop by at 5:30 uh, in the morning every day. not only did she ask me, I asked her and she told me that she'd invested in bitcoins and so you know that's sort of like the shoeshine boy in the 30s or the taxi driver um, you know perhaps that's a sign. I am a believer in uh, blockchain technology. I don't know how it applies yeah. to a price on Bitcoin, but nonetheless, okay. uh, yeah, it's all, it's all around the public in the streets. You
0: know, Bill, I got a problem here. Warren Buffett's 87 years old, and he looks good today when he's making his board changes at Berkeley. Do you think Warren Buffett's chowing down the donuts every morning like Bill Gross? <laughs>
5: <laughs> well maybe the cherry cokes and hot dogs I don't know whether it has diet cherry coke or a regular cherry coke in any case good for him he's a He's in his mid-eighties and he's he's still rolling, and uh, that's what I would hope to do too. Um, he came out this morning and talked about uh, about Bitcoin and suggested at some point he would buy puts over a longer-term basis. I am more optimistic than that. I think Bitcoin and uh, cryptocurrencies have a okay. future, you know, if only because the world is beginning to suspect global currencies.
0: Okay, we got to leave it there, Bill Gross. Thank you so much with Janice Henderson. This important day, uh, with